0: great fortune of reconnecting with Dr. Carrie Jones. We last recorded for the podcast at episode 106 in July of 2020. And I like to think of her as the queen of hormones. Dr. Carrie Jones is an internationally recognized speaker, consultant, and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. She has her master's in public health and was one of the first to become board certified through the American board of naturopathic endocrinology and currently serves on the board. Today, we dove deep into common hormone imbalances that we see in perimenopause and menopause, the impact of healthy versus non healthy mitochondria, the impact of toxins on our hormones. We spoke at great length about thyroid function and the four Ps, which she affectionately refers to as puberty, pregnancy, postpartum, and perimenopause, the impact on our immune system, as well as non thyroidal illnesses, the role of skeletal muscle, things that no longer serve us in middle age testing and why we become more weight loss resistant with age. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. Dr. Jones, I'm so excited to have you back. Um it's hard to believe it's been two years. It was July of 2020, episode 106. For those that are interested in checking out that first episode I did with you, thank you for your contributions to women with humor and memes and a little bit of snark, which is why I love you best. (laughs) And we really are friends outside of social media, which for which I'm very grateful. So welcome.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. I was always love coming on the podcast to be able to see you and talk to you. So this is fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what has changed for you since we last connected? I know that you transitioned from precision analytical to Rupa health and obviously Rupa health is something that now I know a whole lot more about, but one of the pain points for a lot of women is figuring out what kind of testing they need. And now it's Mm -hmm. kind of all in one place, which is really, it must be a cool thing to learn about different types of testing that women can utilize and men for that matter.
1: I've really expanded my lab repertoire for sure. Uh, When you work for one company and you, I mean, hormones is my passion still to this day. So I know an awful lot about the Dutch test having worked there for nine years, but now that I get all this exposure to Lyme testing and autoimmune panels and, you know, just more GI stool testing with the different companies offer SIBO. I mean, it's just been really a lot of fun to Expand beyond and then get to know the company themselves. When you work for a lab company, you're kind of heads down, you're familiar with all the other companies because it's the same industry. But now I like know people there. And you know, I'm in meetings and I get to actually learn how those labs run, some of the labs we've visited. So I've seen them in person and it's really been pretty cool.
0: Well, and it's nice because I would imagine that it just expands your knowledge base. In fact, Mm -hmm. last night I was listening to a thyroid lecture that you gave. And, and like I've said to everyone, <laughs> I was like, Dr. Jones likes a lot of analogies, which allows people to understand the science mm-hmm. at a different level. I think that, you know, for those of us that were pre meds as undergrads or went back into pre meds at kind of scratching off those cobwebs, you're like, oh, I haven't thought about that since biochemistry, but you make the mm-hmm. information really accessible. And I think that's, you know, a unique gift that you have. So let's kind of start the conversation about hormones in general, because Mm -hmm. they are chemical messengers. But I think a lot of people hate their hormones in middle age. They don't (laughs) understand their hormones. And I just like to remind them, it's all about like a seesaw. We're just trying to find balance. That's what our bodies, our body's always looking for homeostasis, Mm -hmm. even if it is not easily available to it.
1: Man, that's the truth, especially, you know, estrogen, which you talk about a lot and just a lot of women hate their estrogen. They think they hate their estrogen and it's such a bad rap. It's very much villainized when in fact, estrogen, our main estrogen is estradiol E2. And it does so much when it's up and down, like it's supposed to be, you know, it's really helpful. We know now for brain health and heart health and bone health, and skin health, and you know, all the healths. And so when somebody says to me, or I read it in the comments or the DMs, when they're like, I just want to suppress all of my estrogen because of my PMS or, you know, my endometriosis or whatever. I understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. But at the same time, I'm like, I think it's possible the way you're being told to go about it, to manage your PMS or manage your endo or manage whatever it is, is maybe not the most ideal because you do actually need your estrogen. I would hate for you to suppress your estrogen in your twenties and thirties and have an increased risk for cardiovascular disease or dementia or osteoporosis, as right as you hit that prime of life cuz we're menopausal for like what like a third of our life depending. And so it's all of the hormones can if they're too little or too much get this really bad rap and I'm like no 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 they do like a symphony. I just need them all play together. Like I need them I need them to go when it's their turn and like be in tune and you know go with the rest of as somebody said yesterday like get the band back together. Like I need the band back together doing the hormonal thing and then it feels good in our body as opposed to feeling completely out of whack.
0: Yeah. And I think the women's health initiative, I mean, I, I have now been talking about this with almost every women's health expert, because mm-hmm. if you followed what happened in the early 2000s, when mm-hmm. I was finishing my NP program and you know hormones were vilified and we had a whole generation of, of individuals that fearful to prescribe them patients who are fearful to take them. And we're starting to see the sequelae of what's happening. And, and I always say there's something for everyone. Like if Mm -hmm. you desire not to be on hormones, you know, that can be supported. And if you desire to be on hormones, that can be supported as well. And so, you know, when we talk about the sequelae of not enough estradiol, not enough progesterone and testosterone, it explains a lot of the symptoms that women experience at this time in their lives. And, I think for so many of us, we live in these kind of sympathetic dominant states Mm -hmm. throughout our lifetime. And then we hit the wall, usually in perimenopause, it happened to me too. And then we have to reevaluate things. And I always say that my high school reunion is always always a good reminder of the people that are thriving versus just surviving. And you can't live like you're 18 when you're 40 something. And it's just this kind of, realization that if you want to thrive in the second part of your life, you have to make some changes. And do you find that to be the case that as you're, you know, you worked for, you, you know, you were in clinical practice for a long time and then now working in kind of a broad-based company, where you are exposed to a lot of different biomarkers and testing. You're probably hearing these common themes of women. They're like, what in the world happened? Like I was doing well, (laughs) and then everything I used to do no longer works.
1: I got told that in practice. So (laughs) excuse me, when I was younger, I'm 45. So when I was a lot younger, my patients who were going into perimenopause were like, I turned 45 and, or I turned 43 and, or I turned 47 and like, I can't sleep. I put on all this weight. I'm super moody. My face is breaking out again. Like my sex drive went away. Everything's dry like or wet at night. Cause I'm like <laughs> having night sweats, but then dry all day. Like what happened? I didn't change anything. And I remember sitting across from them. Like good God, <laughs> You know, like, who designed this? This is terrible. And now that I'm in my forties, it's the same thing. I absolutely see it. And I'm so happy to see so much education on podcasts and books, in social media, bringing perimenopause and menopause into the forefront and having that education, because it's true. I have said it for decades, it's reverse puberty. And we know what it was like going into puberty in our teenage years. Now imagine we're backing out of it. So the things you used to do in your teens, twenties and thirties, just, they quite literally don't work as well anymore. And we have more on us. You know, somebody says, well, why is it harder for me? I'm like, well, remember you're in your fourth decade, your forties when this often happens. So that much more stress. If you have children, they're generally maybe in the high school or into you know college, or maybe you, if you started children later in life, your children are coming into puberty as you're headed into perimenopause your parents are generally older. So you're taking care of aging parents. If your career, you're maybe at the height of your career, a lot of stress in your career. Like it just adds on as opposed to somebody in their twenties who is like, you know, totally fancy free and can do whatever they want when they're young like that. And they don't have the accumulation of life and the world and their choices and toxins and et cetera on them. And so we hit the forties and we become, as you talk about all the time, we become more insulin resistant And we have generally all this cortisol and we're losing our ability to make progesterone and estrogen is just decided to go rogue and it's up one day and down the next day. And nobody's communicating like they used to between the brain and the ovaries and the adrenals and the thyroid. And we feel it. Our patients feel it. Our, you know, the people in our DMs and our comment section are are telling us they're like, "That's exactly how I feel," and nobody taught me about it. My right? nobody talks about it. My practitioner told me, "Well, welcome to your 40s. Good luck." I'm like, no, not good luck. There's a lot you can do.
0: <laughs> I so agree with you because the running joke in my house is that you know I'd like to think I'm more evolved than the average person and no one prepared me, not my mom, not my GYN, Mm -hmm. not my girlfriends who were older than me. No one, no one, no one. Although I remember in cardiology, I always had these women in their forties and I would like scratch my heads. I'm like, clearly what they're experiencing is real, Mm -hmm. but what in the heck is going on? And so now that I'm, you know, now I'm 51. And so I would definitely say 45 ish was when I noticed an increase uptick. And I was like, okay, this isn't working. And the cruel irony is that I now have teenagers and as their hormones are all over the place, Mm -hmm. I would say to my husband, I'm like, thankfully I'm like a very like well-adjusted emotional human being but I have one teenager in particular where it depends on the day. Like some days he's like a cherub and the next day he's a devil and there's no (laughs) in between. And my engineer husband doesn't understand. And I'm like, it's hormones. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think he willingly wants to be a jerk, Mm -hmm. but he can be a jerk. And I'm like, I think the hormones are driving some of that, or at least that's my working hypothesis.
1: I love it. Yeah. I agree. My best friend's daughter, I, I call my goddaughter, she's 14. And despite, and my best friend is also a doctor and um in her forties and feels and eats, you know, kind of similar to how, very similar actually to how exactly how we do. So the child was raised aware of gluten-free, you know, aware of dairy options, like, you know, lots of physical exercise, well-adjusted, you know, good household. And still puberty is what puberty is. <laughs> you can't run from puberty. And is her emotions are up and down. My best friend's in her forties. She's like, oh. Hormones are real. Hormones are real. And I'm trying to work through this.
0: Absolutely. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep And I guess, you know, one of the things that differentiates puberty from reverse puberty or perimenopause or andropause or, you know, adrenal pause, you know, there's all mm-hmm. these kind of catchphrases is really understanding what's changing kind of at a cellular level and really talking about mitochondria, which is a topic I love to nerd out in and talk about, but what are some of the things that start to happen to our mitochondria as we're making this transition as You know, we may feel 30, but we may chronologically be a different age. And so what is changing with the mitochondria, this dysfunctional mitochondria that's driving a lot of the symptoms that women are experiencing?
1: First, our hormones are made in our mitochondria. It's the very first step. So all our steroid hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, and it doesn't matter male or female. The first step is in the mitochondria. They do leave and go into next door, the endoplasmic reticulum and finish out except for cortisol. Cortisol comes back to finish out in the mitochondria. So my point being is the mitochondria are critical for the creation of your steroid hormones, all of them. And then second, your mitochondria are extremely sensitive. They're delicate little creatures. They're your canary in the coal mine. So if it's too cold, too hot, too many toxins, viruses, illness, inflammation, infection, They don't like that. And they're not going to do that. (laughs) And they don't function well with that.
0: (laughs) They're high maintenance. They
1: are high maintenance. And I do joke as much as I love, I do love Mariah Carey and it is Mariah Carey season as we record this, but like we all know girl is dramatic and your mitochondria are very similar. And with good reason, we want our mitochondria to like not support viruses or bacteria. Like we don't want the body, these like outside parasites, outside hijackers to, Like hijack our mitochondria for their use. And so the mitochondria can be like, I'm not doing this today. I'm not supporting you. But when it says that, we lose our ATP, which is our energy. We all learned in school, mitochondria are cellular powerhouses. They literally are producing our ATP. But on top of that, they also make our hormones. And you can have dysfunction in different glands. So somebody might say, well, my adrenals seem to be working okay, but my ovaries are taking a hit. It's not like all the mitochondria talk and decide as a unit one day, like, hey, you know what? It's Thursday today. We're not going to work. It's very gland and tissue dependent. And so because we know our mitochondria are so reactive, so dramatic, it's really important that we work to support our mitochondria, one, for the energy part, which tends to go down as we get older. And then two, for the hormone production part. If we want to maintain as best we can for our age, our levels of hormones, because some do naturally decline, there's nothing we can do about it with age, but we want them to be age appropriate. Then we do have to help and support our mitochondria, which thankfully I should back up and say, unfortunately we don't get a lot of information about it, but thankfully it's, I think it's pretty easy to support mitochondria because they are so dramatic when people go, where do I start? I'm like anywhere, anything you do, whether it's your, you know, diet lifestyle, reducing toxins, exercise, going for a walk on a, you know, getting some sunshine red light therapy, you know, cold showers, dark chocolate, thank God, green tea, like all these things support the mitochondria in the end, intermittent fasting. And so like, just pick one and start somewhere. It'll help your mitochondria.
0: Well, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, we're all talking about hormesis or hermetic mm-hmm. stress. So it's beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. We're not saying to do all of those things all at once yeah. because <laughs> your body may go, the mitochondria may just say, sorry, not yeah, going to happen. Yeah. But I think that it's the cumulative net impact of really poor metabolic health and why Mm -hmm. there's now such a small percentage of individuals without naming what's occurred over the last two and a half years. I think a lot of people had a wake up call slash, you know, hit a wall really hard because they, you know, their coping mechanisms had to change given the fact that we weren't able to do or live our lives the way that we wanted to, I guess that's the most PC way of saying it. And I think, you know, certainly for me, one thing that I find for a lot of middle-aged women that doesn't work very well for them anymore is alcohol. knew you Um, were going to say
1: that. I know.
0: (laughs) I know. And it's very sad because I really, like, I've never been a big drinker. I grew up with an alcoholic parent, but I loved a good martini, like an extra dirty martini, which I think was really just a conduit to salt because I like salt, (laughs) but a really good martini every once in a while was a wonderful thing. But now... The Mariah Carey mitochondria in my body just say, "Heck no!" If you want to sleep, then you don't drink. It's just it's gotten that kind of granular.
1: And I would hear that from women too. In practice, I would have all these women go, "You wait, when you hit forty, you're not going to have be able to drink that wine anymore." So where I practice was Wine Country in the state of Oregon. We have our own wine country. It's Pinot Noir, and so I saw a lot of winery owners a lot of winery people through my practice and they were like, what happened? Like I used to have a glass of wine or I own a winery or work for a winery. And now it just wrecks me. It just wreck. I feel terrible. I'm tired. I sleep really poorly. I wake up feeling haggard. And it's true our enzymes and our liver that process and deal with alcohol really do shift as we head into our forties. And I've had so many of my friends, our friends, our colleagues who were like, Female, like, yes, I've actually either given up alcohol completely or it's just for the grand occasion, a celebration where, you know, I just know what I'm going to feel like the next day. And while we can do a lot to quote, biohack our way through alcohol, people go, Well, don't you take liver support? Can't you take something? I'm like, It's helpful, but it's still alcohol and alcohol as a toxin always wins. And so it can be really hard. And I noticed too, my neighbors, I've said this before the last two years, our recycle day is on Friday, Friday morning. And so Thursday night, everybody puts the recycling out. I have a dog who requires a lot of walking. And so every night, my husband and I walk the dog and we would see our neighbor's glass bins, the recycle bins, full to the brim, beer, liquor, wine bottles, when it hadn't been. I mean, it, not enough that I would notice. And then 2020, 2021, 2022, I'm like, well, I'm pretty aware of how my neighbors are coping. It's it's right there. (laughs) It's
0: reassuring to know that there's a physiologic reason why all of a sudden certain foods, substances, et cetera, are no longer, they're working against us and not with us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. The good stuff in this world, probably it's good in theory, not so good for the body.
0: Yeah. And so it's interesting, as I was stating last night, it popped into my inbox and I decided I was like serendipitous. We're going to be talking today. And you had a lecture talking about thyroid. And so (laughs) thyroid is a hot topic for middle-aged women, largely because so many of them have either subclinical hypothyroidism, many of them have Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of questions that came in for the good doctor were asking about, Thyroid testing, what to be asking for. I admittedly, years ago, used to just order a TSH and a free T4, and I thought that checked the box, and now I know better. So I always like to admit that. But let's talk a little bit about what starts to happen to thyroid function as we have these fluctuations in progesterone and whether or not, vis a vis, we become insulin resistant, all these things that impact thyroid function, and why so many women at middle age are dealing with thyroid issues.
1: And we say at sort of the big P's, that's when thyroid issues, hypothyroidism, so low thyroid, tends to hit women, I think, like 4X over men when it's a true thyroid issue. There's something else called central hypothyroidism, which can affect men and women equally. But your general, what we hear about hypothyroidism is generally women that get affected. So the big P's, puberty, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause and menopause, these big hormonal Grand hormonal shifts are will really affect the thyroid at a variety of levels. So it'll affect it from these shifts and hormones affect our brain. So our brain communicates to the thyroid. It'll affect the thyroid gland itself in our neck. So how we do or don't produce hormone, we in our thyroid gland, we predominantly produce a hormone T4, which you mentioned, and a little bit of T3, but T3 is the active one. That's the big guns. It's like 10x stronger than T4. And then out in our, what we call our periphery, so our like tips of our toes and tips of our fingers and our liver and all the different, your ovaries or testicles, whatever, we can convert and make T3, which is the active guy. So these shifts in hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone can work with or work against the creation of that, the formation of T3. And so as we make these big shifts, Hormones also affect our immune system. So if you were sort of subclinical, maybe you never really ever pop positive for an autoimmune thyroid like Hashimoto's as we make these shifts in estrogen particularly, which has grand influence on our immune system, it can actually push you into now really seeing on lab work. Um, Like maybe you were always sort of borderline on like your Hashimoto's antibodies. And by borderline, I mean, like you were not quite over the edge, but you were pushing close which I know there's arguments that you probably were there and just didn't catch it. But what I see then in perimenopause is these grand shifts in estrogen, grand shifts in the immune system. The body's like, ah, forget it. Like Here are the antibodies. And it will really show up on blood work. It'll make it stupid obvious once we hit into perimenopause, whereas kind of gray area before. So when we couple all this, this is why women in perimenopause, and then you add insulin on top of it. Then you add cortisol on top of it. Then you add years of gut disturbance on top of it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the risk for autoimmune goes up exponentially.
0: It's interesting because I did not know that even though I've never had positive thyroid antibodies, that my acting functional medicine doc said, oh, you definitely have Hashimoto's. You just have been gluten-free for so long that we have never seen positive antibodies. So if you're listening to this and you've been told you don't have Hashimoto's, Statistically, if you're a woman and you have hypothyroidism, more likely than not, you actually have an autoimmune issue. And so that really started to make sense to me. But I think for years, I'd been told by another provider, oh, you don't have Hashimoto's because you've never had positive antibodies. So if anyone's listening and if that provides kind of an enlightenment for me, I took it much more seriously because no, it wasn't related to mercury. No, it wasn't related to low iodine. When you were working with patients clinically, how often did you see these kind of rare or ideologies for hypothyroidism? Because now I'm understanding it, that it really it really is Driven by these hormonal shifts, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but also this immune reaction, leaky gut, and all these other things. You know, it's this piling on of years and years and years of stress and other things when we haven't been taking care of ourselves that really impact our susceptibility to Hashimoto's.
1: And in fact, now we know there are other autoimmune markers that aren't just commonly tested for. So, TSH receptor, for example. So, Hashimoto's is not defined by a positive TSH receptor antibody. It's defined more by thyroid peroxidase, a positive thyroid peroxidase antibody, TPO, many of you may know it as. And so when I was doing all this research into autoimmune thyroid, while Hashimoto's is definitely the most um, talked about and what we would call the most common, there are other autoimmune types of thyroid you can have. Um, We just don't routinely hear about them or get tested for them. Then on top of that, you can have something called non-thyroidal illness syndrome, so what that means is you and in the, the big three reasons are big inflammation, big infection, and sepsis, sepsis being kind of worst case scenario. And because you have this infection, inflammation, sepsis happening through the body, the thyroid, the cells themselves are trying to protect them. So they down the ability of T4 to get into the cell and then convert into that active form of T3. So it actually has nothing to do with, with the thyroid gland itself, that you don't have a gland issue and you may not have an auto, you know, an autoimmune issue, but you do have thyroid symptoms in pathology and pathology on labs driven by inflammation and infection that you've got. And of course, worst case scenario, sepsis, but by then you're probably in the hospital and you can have both at the same time. You can have developed, caught a major infection. And at the same time, you might also have Hashimoto's And so you get this double drive against your thyroid. So when people say to me, where do I, like, oh yeah, I have thyroid issues. Like where, you know, where do I start? I was put on medication. I don't feel any better. I'm like, well, there's a slew of reasons that the body does or doesn't make thyroid. And so let's work to figure out why aren't you making your T3? Why are your cells mad and not letting your T4 inside? What's going on with your immune system? What's triggering and worsening the autoimmune system? So it is like anything else in the body. The thyroid is not one and done. It's not here, take this medication and you're you're fixed. Um, it does take like everything, some work to backpedal and figure out what's pissed it off and what can we do about it.
0: Well, I think it's really important. I know Dr. Eric Balcavage, who's mm-hmm. coming on the podcast again in next month, to talk about his new book. He talks a lot about cellular hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. And I don't see a lot of clinicians talking about this because I think to your point, a lot of individuals, they're told they have an underactive thyroid, they get medication, they're like, okay, checkbox fixed. And then they realize that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. You can take medication and still feel terrible.
1: Because yeah, um, this. at this cell, he has a great example in his book, actually, where he talks about, and I found this in the literature. It's interesting how researchers and what they publish like around thyroid, but and what endocrinologists teach don't always line up. I'm like it's literally in the research. It's literally the sentence right here in this study says like we've known for decades or we've no, you know like they know this. It just doesn't get translated. But Eric has an example in his book of if you with cellular hypothyroidism, so you can take thyroidic. You're given T4. Let's say you're given thyroxin or synthroid, and so. T4 comes into the system and it's super excited and it goes up to a cell and it knocks in the door and it says, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm T4, I'm here. And the cell is like, ah, no, you can't come inside. So now when you test, maybe you test some blood markers and the T4 looks good because it's still hanging out in the blood, but it can't get in the cell and it can't convert into the active form of T3. So then somebody says, all right, we're going to add T3. I'm going to add T3 to your mix, either liothyronine or cytomel to give you, I'm going to compound you some sort of combination, something. So now you just flood the system with T3. What can happen in some cases is that again, the cell is like, no, I don't want you in here. We have inflammation and infection going on. Like you need to go away and I'm protecting my cell. And so now you test and now you're like, well, I feel anxious when I take T3. I feel nervous. I can't sleep. I have heart palpitations because you have all this T3 going other places around floating around your circulation. And so it can't get in the cell. Or the body goes, okay, cool. I'm just going to deactivate it. Like, I don't want all this T3. I'm literally downregulating to protect you because of whatever, infection, inflammation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just going to deactivate you to something called reverse T3. So you give T3 and then they end up just deactivating it. And again, just like you said, they st- they're like, my symptoms didn't go away. Or they feel better for a couple of weeks or maybe a couple months. And then they come back and go, I need more. I need more. That didn't work.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important for people to understand that, it, you know, taking the medication is not the end story. I'm now working with someone who has been making little adjustments every two weeks with compounded T4 and T3. And it's the best I have felt in a really long time. But I think for anyone who's being treated for thyroid issues, if you don't feel better, there's probably something that's mitigating this. So when you are recommending to clinicians or talking to clinicians or doing the amazing education that you do across social media and in talks, Where's a good starting point? I know that we talk about a full thyroid panel, mm-hmm. but you also mentioned some of these antibodies and, and certainly like TPO, I'm very familiarized with, yeah. not as familiarized with this TSH receptor antibody, but mm-hmm. when would be the time to be advocating for additional testing along with kind of the basic labs? Cause I think actionable advice is really very helpful on this podcast cause then people take notes and then they yeah. go advocate for themselves, which I think is so important.
1: So when you are in these, first of all, if you're symptomatic, if you've done a quiz online, if you've listened to past podcasts, when you listen to Eric, Dr. Eric, and you're like, I have all the symptoms, I have all the symptoms of hypo or hyperthyroidism, then that's when you need to get more thorough workup. I saw a post on Instagram yesterday where somebody was like, you know, doctors who run full thyroids as a red flag. I'm like, no, it's not. I can understand not running it on absolutely every person who walks through your office if it doesn't fit at that time. But if somebody comes in and says like, I'm tired, I have weight loss resistance, I'm losing my hair, I have dry skin, I've const- you know, like I'm constipated, I have a family history of thyroid, you know, or I'm subclinical thyroid issues. I was told a couple years ago and I, you know, they didn't do anything about it. I didn't know what to do. So as these boxes are being checked for me, I'm like, we're doing a full thyroid panel. So I'm looking at the TSH, which is what you mentioned earlier, thyroid stimulating hormone. I look at free T3. I look at free T4, so I do look at both. I look at reverse T3 because I want to see how much is getting deactivated. That helps me to understand if it's more of a cellular issue. And then I look at, I do look at the two big antibodies. So TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibody, TGAB, thyroglobulin antibody. And I usually start, I just usually start there. Now, if the TSH receptors, there's like four or five other antibodies, uh, thyroid antibodies, I don't generally start with, Yet I may add them later as we're working through, for example, if the antibodies are negative and the very symptomatic f- family history, I'm like, there's autoimmune somewhere. Let's just go ahead and check some of these other markers and make sure. But that's usually where I start with the panel when somebody comes in like that. And what's great is that what we're requesting, n- n- I should say, most of those labs are not weird. They're not hard to find. They're not rare at all. It's just if you're hopefully a your practitioner is willing to order them for you. The one that's tough to get sometimes is the reverse T3, the RT3, I have had HMO groups refuse. I have had hospital groups refuse. And I know in some countries, it's nearly impossible to get. They don't do or believe in reverse T3, but if you can get it, it's helpful.
0: Yeah, and I always think about reverse T3 as the brakes. Yeah. You know, what is driving the brakes? I think when reverse T3 is normal, I don't worry about it. But when I'm looking at labs and I'm kind of looking for, you know, playing detective, like we all do, we're like, okay, what is raising a red flag? What is something that we need to lean into? And I think, you know, something else that has certainly been apparent to me is, you know, since I'm allopathic trained, I also have functional training is understanding that both can be, it's like playing in a sandbox. I'm gonna use one of your kind of analogy explanations. We can all play in the same sandbox, but understanding that those traditional labs can be helpful as well as the integration of some of these functional integrative medicine labs, mm-hmm. which give us a different perspective. And one of the really great things that I think about is blood labs for estradiol and estrone mm-hmm. and progesterone and free and total testosterone, versus looking at them on a Dutch. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about the sex hormone piece, because this is in particular, an area that I found it really beneficial to have both to look Mm -hmm. at both of them. Unfortunately, I hear from many women. Oh, my doctor said I'm in menopause. We don't need to check my hormones. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) it's like, we need to get you hooked up with a different doctor. That is for sure.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, my old boss at Dutch used to say, all this different lab work is just looking at, into different windows of the same house. So, in some cases certain types of blood work or urine look or saliva or stool is better than others, and others you're just getting a different viewpoint. You're on the first floor as opposed to the second floor, you're in the front door as opposed to the sliding door. And I always love that analogy when somebody says, "I have all this lab work back and, you know, I hear conflicting things." I'm like, "It's all you. It's all you. You're at the same house. We're just looking at you" from different angles. Now it does take somebody maybe a little more skilled, a little more trained to understand the different angles. And as you said, I'd love that if your practitioner is against it, doesn't believe in it, doesn't want to, but you don't feel good, it's totally fine to get another practitioner to request another practitioner to keep them if you like them for certain things and add to your, your clinical team. So yes, I am totally okay with people running, blood work for their hormones. I get asked a lot, like, oh, but my insurance covers estradiol and progesterone and free and total testosterone or sex hormone binding globulin, DHEA, et cetera. And the blood work, can I start there? I'm like, of course you can. Of course you can. It's just one of the windows into your house and and we can use that. And then we can add on, depending on their goals and budget, we can add on something like the Dutch test, which is, I think, real helpful as we head into menopause because so many women This is when breast cancer obviously becomes more at risk. And a lot of women are going or choosing or deciding to go on estrogen replacement. And the Dutch test, the urine part, gives us what are known as metabolites. Metabolites is just a fancy word for when estrogen breaks down, because it has to go somewhere, where does it break down? And some of those breakdown pathways are good or better. And some of those breakdown pathways, not so good. We don't really want to go down that pathway. And so it's helpful for me when I'm like, all right, you want to go on estrogen, you're having all the hot flashes, the night sweats, the vaginal dryness, the brain fog, etc. Let me just make sure your estrogen, should I give it to you, is going to go down the right pathway. And if it's not, let's course correct and then start estrogen. So I like that extra window into the house of estrogen with the urine test.
0: At some point, we've all been sold a big slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And I think it's really helpful and insightful because it's something that you can then track. I know for Mm -hmm. myself, pre-HRT... During HRT, one of the reasons why I went off of what I was taking was because I went from metabolizing my estrogen down the 2OH pathway, which Mm -hmm. is the good pathway, and down the 4OH, which is the one that we know can be damaging to DNA, and we want to really avoid that. And I always use myself as an example when I'm working with clients to really understand, like... It doesn't mean it's forever. For me, it was the type of HRT I was taking, which I'm now no longer on. Um, and my levels are back to I'm actually back to a point where I'm able to metabolize my estrogen properly. And so when people are listening to this and they're trying to kind of wrap their heads around some of these differentiators, so what can impact our ability to process estrogen properly in our bodies beyond like medication? So let's start yeah. with like the basic stuff that I think is really helpful.
1: So a lot of it, first of all, we're set up genetically to yes or no, a certain pathway. So sometimes genetically you are set up, thankfully, to go down the better pathway. And sometimes, unfortunately, you're set up to go down the less better pathway, (laughs) the not so helpful pathway, the four pathway. And in some cases the 16 pathway. But everything alcohol, you know, the toxins we're exposed to. These pathway let I me mean, let me clarify. These pathways we're talking about, we're talking about with estrogen. Estrogen is not the only thing they deal with. They deal with lots of stuff, everything. So we're very focused on estrogen, but if you manipulate these pathways, they also manipulate how you do and don't process pesticides or herbicides or fragrance or phthalates or plastics or medication, alcohol, et cetera. So all of these things can affect your diet. You know, some of these pathways are really improved by things that are your brassica family, your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower. If you choose not to or don't eat those things in your diet, then you may be missing out on improving that help better pathway, the two pathway. And as we move through detoxification, so there's phases. So the second phase, like really relies on magnesium. Magnesium is a big helper. Your B vitamins are big helpers. Choline. Well, if you can't, if you're not eating those foods, if you can't absorb those foods, so digestion is a big thing you've got heartburn, you have H. pylori, you've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, got parasites or you know, a lot of GI stuff that's going to affect, believe it or not, how you absorb all these nutrients that are then good for your liver. And then how do we get rid of the estrogen? Well, we urinate it out or we poop it out. So if you are constipated, that's going to affect your ability to get estrogen out. And so you can see a lot of gut talk we're talking a lot of gut talk and a lot of liver talk so the more you can do to support am i pooping every day you know do i have gas bloating constipation diarrhea am i popping heartburn medications often do i have a history of an ulcer do i feel like i have an ulcer you know all these questions are helpful for us at large but in particular this conversation estrogen
0: yeah. And I think it's important. And the irony is you can still have a bowel movement every day and still not be clearing your estrogen properly. So yeah. don't let that be a, don't assume because you have a bowel movement every day that you are. And I say this with love and reverence because last year when I had that Dutch that I was predominantly processing down the 4OH pathway, guess what? I had a bowel movement every day. And I was certainly very surprised when I got my results. So talking about estrogen, talking about gut health, What are your favorite tests for looking at gut health? I obviously have favorites, but I'd love to hear yours. (laughs)
1: Like an actual favorite company or favorite markers I'm looking at?
0: Why don't we say both? Because I think that's (laughs) both relevant.
1: So I'll be honest. This is the great thing of working at Rupa Health is that I don't believe I, I don't have a favorite gut test since I now work with all the companies, but I can tell you the top. Companies that practitioners seem to love. So, Diagnostic Solutions has something called the GI Map. There's another company called Genova. They have the GI effects. There's a company called Microbiome. They have biome effects. And there's a company called Doctors Data and they have GI360. And so, those are probably, and then there's a company called Vibrant. Vibrant does Zoomer markers, which are also popular. But I would say, I would say just from casual observation, the DSL GI Map and the Genova are probably what you're going to see the most in social media and in practitioners because of what they test and how long they've been around and the education they do. So those are the big ones that you'll see. Now you can go to your primary care and they'll do a quickie stool test. If you travel out of, let's say you travel out of the country and you get a diarrhea and you go to your primary care, urgent care, and they're going to go, okay, here, poop, put it in this vial, give it to us. They're just doing a quickie test for things like Giardia. Like they just want to make sure like the top five, real bad organisms. You have parasites you haven't picked up, but they're, it's not a comprehensive like inflammation, infection, bacteria, good and bad bacteria. Uh, some of these other, you know, pH, these other cool markers, calprotectin, you know, they're not going to pick that up. So if you, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I got a stool, like I got home from Mexico and I was having diarrhea. I did, I think I got a stool test. It was normal. That's we're talking a much more comprehensive multi-page report in these companies. So those are probably the top ones.
0: No, and I, I have familiarity with almost all of them. And and I do think when I'm looking at the diagnostic solutions, GI Map in particular, because mm-hmm. that's the one I use the most, really zeroing in because the beta glucuronidase mm-hmm. there on that test, looking at dysbiosis. Sadly, almost everyone has some degree of dysbiosis. And I think that's probably a byproduct of our lifestyles and stress and the foods we eat and a multiplicity of things. The estrobolone, which is this yeah. goofy name for how our body kind of interacts with estrogen in the gut. But for you, is the beta glucuronidase that you'll really, yeah. On. So the
1: beta so when estrogen, the final two steps for estrogen before you either push it to the kidneys or push it into the colon, it's called sulfation or glucuronidation. Fancy words, I don't know who named them, but that's what they are. Sulfation or glucuronidation. So beta-glucuronidase is an enzyme that you make in your intestines in your, from your microbiome and it acts like scissors. So it cuts off the G, the glucuronic acid of your estrogen. When the G is on, your estrogen is neutral. It can't bind to receptors. It's also water soluble, so you can get rid of it. When you come in contact with beta-glucuronidase like scissors, it cuts it off. Now the G is gone. So now you can be reabsorbed. It's kind of like a package where the bow has been undone and the lid has been lifted and estrogen floats away. So now it gets reabsorbed. So beta-glucuronidase is a big one because the higher it is, the more at risk you are for having estrogen float away and get reabsorbed. And that was estrogen that was tagged to go. Like Your body was like, we're done with you, go away, get out. And it gets back in the system. Unfortunately, we know that the sulfation scissors, which is known as sulfatase. We know it exists in the gut. Commercial testing is not there yet to look at it. So even if somebody has normal levels of beta-glucuronidase, there's a lot about that microbiome. We just don't know yet. And in the next several you know months to years, good gracious, we've come so far in just a short time, we're going to get a lot more information around that part of the microbiome that deals with estrogen, the esterobolome. And now they talk about the endobolome, the endocrine microbiome because we know the microbiome plays a big role in testosterone and DHEA and progesterone and, you know, the entire endocrine system.
0: It's really fascinating. And I think on a lot of different levels, we don't think about our gut until we start having problems. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, all these imbalances. (laughs) Yeah. The, oh, I was on antibiotics for six weeks to treat, you know, Lyme, which you needed to take. And then it disrupts the entire gut microbiome and you're suddenly having more anxiety and depression and, You're not making healthy neurotransmitters. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. so much to the gut microbiome. And certainly back in the dark ages, when I trained, we didn't talk about the gut. It was like the gut was talked about as, you know, here are these organs. Mm -hmm. These are the signs your organs are not working properly. Mm -hmm. And we never really thought about good or non-beneficial or beneficial bacteria in the gut. And I always yeah. talk about dysbiosis as an example of non-beneficial bacteria in the gut. It's kind of like having weeds in a garden. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I've got there a, go. a I love Jones analogy. It. I'm <laughs>
1: super proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot
0: of the questions that I got came in around testosterone. I think testosterone is a really poorly understood hormone vis-a-vis women. We do make testosterone. It is much more potent in our bodies, but unlike estrogen and and correct me if I'm wrong, estrogen kind of, we get pushed off a cliff. Eventually we get Mm -hmm. pushed off the cliff and then, you know, that drop in estrogen precipitates a lot of systems and symptoms. Testosterone is kind of this gradual decline. Yeah. And so, Let's talk about testosterone because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I promise we won't touch on pellets because Sean Tassone and I talked about pellet therapy. We had a whole conversation, a little powwow on that. Let's talk about testosterone because I think it's such an important hormone. I think women just think about estrogen and they just think about progesterone. And I remind them that testosterone is, I think, also equally important in our longevity and our health.
1: And testosterone is made in a few places. So unlike men who make 95 plus percent of it in the testicles, we make it in three main places. We make 20 to 25% of our testosterone out of the ovaries, 20 to 25% of it out of our adrenal glands, out of a layer of our adrenal glands. And then the rest of it, the body can, we have a intermediate hormone called androstenedione and it can convert into testosterone out in the rest of our tissues. So as we head into perimenopause and menopause, we start to lose ovarian function because of aging, and therefore we can lose 20 to 25% of testosterone production. The ovary shuts down, so we lose all that. Unfortunately, nobody tells the periphery and nobody tells the adrenal glands, hey, the ovaries are shutting down, they're menopausal now, you need to pick up the slack. Now, interestingly, I have read some research that says, Women's testosterone sh- doesn't or shouldn't decline through the years, and I'm like, how much experience have you had testing women through the years? Because <laughs> right, you and I've had a lot, and I'm like, I mean, most of the time, I would say it does decline to some degree, and then can be really, and sometimes it's to a major degree. They just bottom out; their their poor testosterone's just like goodbye, and down it goes, and so that's what leads. Women to you know we don't have a lot of it, but what we do have it does play a role in our mood and muscle formation, you know, lean body mass and libido and you know focus and drive and things like that. And so, to, to if we bottom out in our testosterone, I don't want to forget about it. Estrogen gets the most commercial airtime, but testosterone plays a role there too.
0: Well, and I think a lot of people think about it just in conjunction with libido, but when mm-hmm. I see women with really low free testosterone, they lack motivation. They're Mm -hmm. wondering why they don't want to go to the gym. It's not that they don't want to go. They just, it's like really hard intrinsically to get them motivated to do things. And so understanding that it's going to make it harder if your testosterone is low to build muscle, it's going, you know, there are cognitive functions of testosterone that people don't understand. Again, they just think, oh, I'm going to coast through menopause, it doesn't matter. And I always say brain health to me is super important as well as muscle health. And you talked about muscle health. So we're going to go there. Why are muscles so important as we get older?
1: Well, you know, if everyone listens to Dr. Gabrielle um, Lyon and she talks about muscle as its own system, you know, muscle just got, it's just muscle. Like, you know, what do we care? Turns out the muscle, their skeletal muscles are pretty important and does a lot for blood sugar and glucose and insulin and hormones and our longevity, resiliency. I mean, it's this entire system. So if we don't have muscle, which... As we get older and we lose estrogen and progesterone, we are more prone to becoming insulin resistant, which we don't want. We don't want, once you sort of move into insulin resistance, you're at a higher risk for prediabetes and diabetes and and then it spirals from there. Having good, healthy amounts of muscle on our body helps prevent that, helps prevent that. We use our skeletal muscle then we become more insulin sensitive, which is a good thing. We like being insulin sensitive so that we don't have all this glucose floating around when it shouldn't be. It can be sucked up into the muscle, for lack of a better analogy, and then utilized. And so having muscle keeps you young, keeps you mobile, keeps you healthier. And as we, again, we make that transition, a lot of women heading into perimenopause don't have a lot of muscle on them. I'm not saying you have to be a bodybuilder, competitive level muscle, but they've been busy raising children, working their jobs, handling life. And then maybe they go to the gym, maybe they don't, you know, and then they hit into perimenopause with not a lot of muscle on them. And then they tell me, well, what I did have is squishier. Carrie, I'm getting squishier. Like I'm doughy, Carrie. I would hear this all the time from women in their in their 40s and 50s. Like overnight, what happened? I'm losing, I had a little bit of tone and now it's gone. Like, I know it's so important because we roll into our 40s and you talk about this all the time, the importance of putting some muscle on, yeah, getting it- getting strong.
0: And it's interesting because no one ever told me we have peak bone and muscle mass in our twenties and thirties. And I never understood the interrelationship between maintaining muscle and maintaining insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And there was a recent study that I looked at that was talking about the net impact of lower estrogen levels. So again, perimenopause, you have wide fluctuations it might be high one day, low the next, and that impacts your muscle to fat ratio in the body. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising. We get fluffy, which is my hateful word for what happens. Yeah, Fluffy, squishy. Mm -hmm. You know, none of us want that. We may want that if we're talking about, you know, jello, but we probably don't want that. (laughs) We probably don't want that word. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's interesting, this interrelationship with estrogen and how that plays a role in insulin sensitivity Mm. and muscle mass. And so it's not all in your head that this starts to happen. And even in men, If they're insulin resistant, they will aromatize. So they'll actually Mm -hmm. make estrogen from testosterone. So if you see men that look feminized or they have, you know, we used to call it gynecomastia, they have, Mm -hmm. you know, breast tissue that's forming. Sometimes that's medication mediated, but more often than not, it's this aromatization of testosterone to estrogen, which is really interesting Mm -hmm. and leading to more fat and less lean muscle mass at this stage of our lives. Now, I got a couple of random questions. And so I'm going to do some random questions because yeah. I know these are things you're well-familiar with. Why are we more prone to histamine and high responses in middle age? And I know this is a direct mm-hmm. reflection of estrogen, but I'm sure you'll state it in a much more eloquent way.
1: <laughs> well, a couple of things. So first of all, if you remember back, we talked about by the time you hit middle age, you have all those years of accumulation on you. So how your liver functions, your gut function, your stress levels, your resilience, et cetera, et cetera. And so those play a role in how you are able to handle histamine, whether histamine foods, the breakdown of histamine, histamine when it's allergy season, histamine from wine, whatever it is. So that right there is against us. Secondly, when we have a lot of estrogen, so typically in perimenopause, as you said, we get these wild fluctuations because sometimes the ovaries are listening and sometimes they're not, not like they used to, they're not as rhythmic as they used to. When you get these high fluctuations of estrogen, it slows down the breakdown of histamine. So whereas maybe five years prior, you could be in allergy season and do fine. As an example, you maybe have a little snifflies, but you're pretty good. Now you get into allergy season and you're like, oh, my gosh, has allergy season gotten worse? You're looking around your neighborhood or your friends and you're like, is your allergies just as bad as mine? Has it gotten worse? When really potentially what happened is that we now have all these wild shifts in estrogen. So we can't break it down like we used to. And I see that time and time again because histamine also plays a role in our prostaglandin formation so i have a lot of women that are like my cramps cramps in allergy season or cramps when i eat histamine food high histamine foods are worse and i'm like oh because you have all this estrogen you can't break down histamine you push out prostaglandins prostaglandins make our spasmy and they make things squeeze and so especially as we get close to our cycle then we're like what the heck my cramps used to be fine and now like i'm having all these crazy weird spasmy things happening down there and it hurts it's not fair there's stuff we can do but it's still not fair
0: no, absolutely not. And I know there've been so many people asking about that in particular
1: mm-hmm. last
0: question before I respectfully let you go. Cause I know that you've got a busy work day. What are your thoughts on weight loss resistance? So obviously big topic, lots of things that impact it, but why mm-hmm. are women? I mean, a lot of things that we just talked about, a lot of things that, you know, the mu- loss of muscle mass, mm-hmm. insulin sensitivity, et cetera but what would be like your top three surprising weight loss resistance issues that most people aren't thinking about?
1: I mean, number one is stress is a big one. And when we have a lot of cortisol, cortisol's main job is to increase our glucose. I mean, cortisol does a lot of things for stress, but increase our glucose is a big one. And then we're middle-aged. So we're already insulin, getting more insulin resistant than we were in our thirties. So you have high cortisol, more glucose, more insulin resistant, and therefore weight loss resistance. And in our, the cells in our fat tissue, they're called adipocytes or adipocytes. They actually have a little enzyme in them, God bless them, that activates cortisol. It keeps cortisol active. And so we have all this extra cortisol in our actual fat tissue that's amplifying. And so our fat tissue can expand which again is not fair. And we, then we tend to see that like spare tire weight gain. Or if you already have the spare tire, it tends to get bigger as you move into your 40s because it already has that enzyme, unfortunately, cortisol. You're already stressed out. Or maybe you're doing things you think that used to be helpful for you, like my runners, my cardio bunnies, my Peloton riders, and they do it every day or twice a day, or the long runs are what clear their head. But now they've moved into their 40s and that is actually just stressing them out. Too much cortisol, too much glucose. So it more balance. So I'm like, hey, we need to flip into more weights. Let's let's build some lean muscle to help with that lean weight loss resistance. Let's start, flip into some stretching. Let's do like walking. Let's not be cardio bunnies all the time as we hit into our forties. I totally get it Help clear your head, but it may not be working for you right now. Let's switch it up because we have to. And go from there. So that's probably the number one we don't think about a lot with cortisol. Number two, so I've said, we've talked a lot about blood sugar and insulin, but I feel like people get their blood sugar checked. You get a fasting blood sugar and 100, the upper end of the range is generally 100. And then if you get above 126, you're into the, one, the diabetes range. Anything in between is considered pre-diabetic. And I have a lot, I had a lot of patients that floated in that upper 90s, 99, 98, 101. And their doctor's like, well, you're not 126, you're not diabetic. So just, you know, we'll keep an eye on it. Knowing their glucose was already starting to creep up there, knowing they're already heading into insulin resistance. And especially insulin is a big one. Not a lot of practitioners run an insulin, functional practitioners do, but a fasting insulin, the reference range is massive. It's like two to 25 which is way, way, way too big. In fact, I was reading a research article the other day that said the higher our insulin is, the more we are susceptible to developing metabolic syndrome. It was a human study. And they said that your risk for metabolic syndrome went up as your insulin got well above, it gets like seven. So single digit, seven or above. So you will often hear functional integrative practitioners talk about a fasting insulin needing to be between two and five. And then if you get up to seven and nine, like, Ooh, you're starting to really, according to the study. And then imagine if you're in the double digits. And so I would have these patients say, no, no, I got glucose and insulin tested totally normal, but their glucose was 99. Their insulin was 21 and they totally fall in the range. But I know that's really contributing to their weight loss resistance just because the lab range is there. It doesn't mean it's going to, it's helping them achieve their goals. I know you see that. <laughs> I,
0: I, do. I and, do. And and the unfortunate thing is I get so much pushback from primaries yeah. about drawing a fasting insulin. It's like a $12 test. It's not expensive. And that range that I look for is two to five. Yeah. So when someone's seven, eight, nine, they start to creep or I've had, I've worked with women who swear their A1Cs are normal. They're fasting glucose is normal. And then their fasting insulin is 20. And I'm like, well, we know why you are insulin resistant and we know why you're weight loss resistant and we have to address this. And ironically enough, that is such a common discussion that I have with people helping them understand that I don't care what your fasting glucose is. This is usually the first biomarker that will start to dysregulate way before your A1C becomes abnormal or your fasting glucose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then I would say the third thing is, the water retention that comes with inflammation. And I actually just read, I had a practitioner friend of mine post the other day. She's, she was been working on Lyme disease and mold. And as she's been working on it, she said, I lost 10 pounds just like that off the scale. Doesn't mean it was 10 pounds of fat. She knew it was, she's like, I just felt puffy. I, you know, I didn't, wasn't like, I just felt, you know, rings were tighter, socks were tighter, face looked kind of puffier. And as she continued to work on this inflammation, and a lot of the commenters, under her were like, yep, same. Once I addressed whatever, you know, my gut health, I was having gas and bloating, my SIBO, my, you know, chronic, you know, whatever it was, virus, Epstein-Barr, the mold in my house. I mean, it really could be anything. Like I noticed that too. I was not trying to intentionally lose weight because I was so focused on getting healthy and in the process, the, um, inflammatory weight, so to speak came off. And I think that's like histamine makes people puffy. You know, when you've got have histamine issues, if you've ever been in allergy season, which is me, I'm allergic to grass pollen, mold, trees, dust, all the things. And like my face is puffy. My under eyes, like you can barely see my eyes. They puff up so much. So imagine the rest of my body. And then if I'm not careful or, you know, don't take care of myself. And people live with this all day long and think this is their normal and they don't feel well. And so that's the other thing. So it's not so much weight loss resistance as it is. Let's handle, let's work on what's making you inflamed and retain all that water. That's not helping the cause.
0: No, that's such a great point. And obviously I could talk to you forever, but (laughs) let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to find you on social media I love Dr. Carrie because she makes everything very clear with lots of analogies, a little bit of snark and a lot of good memes. I call her affectionately the queen of hormones. So you it. have to go, you have to go <laughs> check her out, but how do we connect with you outside of the podcast?
1: So on Instagram, I'm at Jones. I am dipping my toe into TikTok, which is a whole new world. And I'm at Dr. carrie Jones there and my website as drcareyjones.com.
0: Awesome. Well, it's always a pleasure connecting with you. I know there'll be a third and probably a fourth on the agenda hope. in the
1: coming years. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Cynthia. It's always fun. Absolutely.
0: If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.